Passages, I'm Rachel Powell, and this is Passages Voice. Join us for 30 minutes and three things that you need to know about the Middle East in 2019, today on Passages Voice. everyone, this is Rachel here, and I'm here with Robert Nicholson, the Executive Director at the Philos Project. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Robert uh, travels extensively all over the Middle East um, and has a lot of knowledge on the current situation in the Middle East. Um, so Robert is going to kind of help us understand a little bit more about what is currently happening um, now and um, going to be coming forth um, in 2019 in the Middle East. So, Robert, can you maybe for our audience give us a little bit of a picture of the Middle East now? So who, who um, is on this stage and, and what are the players currently? Sure. Well, thank you, Rachel, for having me and hello to all of the Passages alumni. It's, it's great to be here. I will do my best to do this in a short version, and maybe the best way to start is by affirming that, yes, what you heard is true. The Middle East is a giant mess. It's no less messy than it was last year, and it's not entirely clear where it's going to go from here. So I'm giving you the answer up front. It's, it's a mess. We're not sure what the final solution, the ultimate outcome will be, but uh, we are able to identify what's happening on the field. So um, you have on the stage uh, a number of different players who at the most, you know, at the most basic level represent the various states of the Middle East. And each state is different. Um, obviously, Israel is very different from the Arab states, but the Arab states are different from the Turkish state and the Persian state and even the Arab states themselves are different. Uh, they have different regimes, different ideologies, uh, and so there's no way you can kind of describe the whole region um, with, you know, in one sentence. Every state, every country has a particular interest and they're all vying for um, their own interests as states always do. You also have, in addition to all of these different states, you have the outside players, uh, which includes us, which includes the United States of America. You also have uh, the other big player in the region is uh, Russia. And Russia, over the last few years, anyone who's been paying attention to the news knows that Russia has taken a bigger and bigger role inside the Middle East, particularly in Syria, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but uh, also in other parts of the region as well. On the ground and cutting across different states, you have these uh, cultural groups. You have Sunnis, you have Shiites, you have Christians, you have Jews, you have smaller communities uh, besides those. And each of those, even when they, um, you know, they may belong to different states. Take the Kurds, for example. The Kurds are an ethnic group. They are Sunni Muslims, but they have their own sort of national uh, movement that is different from the states in which they live. And, you know, they may live in Turkey, they may live in Iraq, they may live in Syria, but their goals, their aspirations all have to do with being Kurdish. And so in addition to the level of states 
and addition to the level above that of these kind of external states, uh, these foreign powers like the U.S. and Russia, beneath all of it, you have these cultural groups. And the Middle East is, if anything, a region of groups. These group identities, even the ones that we don't fully understand, they matter, and they matter a lot to the people who live in the region. If you're Jewish, you care a lot about being Jewish. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter which state you're in, being a Christian is the most important part of your identity. So what you have is this situation which, uh, where all of these different identities, these different regimes are all kind of clashing. And it's really, I think, you know, maybe the simplest way to describe it is, is it's some kind of civil war. And this is, not, this is not new. I think we've even talked about it before. But it's, it's this ongoing competition between these various stakeholders trying to figure out what the future of the region is going to look like. I mean, you can take a very small microcosm uh, of Syria, which is the thing that we've all been seeing in the news for you know, since 2011. Syria is, in a small way, uh, it represents what's happening in the region of, as a whole. You have different cultural groups, you have different state and non-state actors all competing to determine what the future of Syria is going to look like. And every day the situation is changing. For us, uh, for me, sitting at the Philos Project, uh, a group that cares about pluralism in the Middle East, and of course cares a lot about my fellow Christians uh, in the Middle East and others who share, share our values, how that civil war affects the people that I'm most concerned about is, is, a big, is a big issue for us, trying to figure out you know, how does this affect Christians? How does it affect Jews? How does it affect other minorities? And as an American, how, does it, how is it going to affect me? Are the problems of the Middle East going to stay over there? Or are there things that are kind of brewing now that are ultimately going to land on our shores? And so this is the big question for the U.S. right now. We're in 2019. We're in the third year of the Trump presidency. And I'm not sure that Trump or anyone in the Trump administration is completely clear on how we as the U.S. feel about any of this. And again, Syria is a perfect example. Should we stay? Should we keep U.S. troops in Syria? Or should we pull them out? And the American people are uh, in disagreement about, about what our posture is toward the Middle East. How involved should we get? Can we actually make a difference? Are there any good guys at all? Or, or is everyone just kind of a different sort of bad guy? And uh, these are the questions that we're asking ourselves at Philos, but these are the questions that I think all of us as Americans, as Christians, should be asking ourselves as well, is what, what part of this do we need to engage? Like, where do our values lead us? And of course, for us, uh, the first place that leads us is with, with Christians of, of the Middle East. And I think if anyone is paying attention to the news, they know that the situation in the Middle East for Christians has, has, never been, has never been worse. And whether you're talking about Egypt or Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, uh, the numbers are dwindling, people are leaving, and the people who are staying are facing pretty severe persecution or at best some kind of discrimination. It's something we talk about a lot at Philos, and I think Christians here in, in the West need to be thinking and praying uh, for these brothers and sisters in the midst of this sort of crazy mess of the Middle East. Yeah, so, so you were mentioning the Christians of the Middle East, um, and you just kind of 
briefly touched on that, but what, what is the current state of the Christian community in the Middle East, um, in the different countries surrounding? So Christians for the last 1,400 years have lived in a best-case scenario as second-class citizens, sort of living under what we might think of as kind of a Jim Crow system. They are equal but separate. They may be able to vote. They may be able to participate to some to some extent in society, but they are they are not seen as equals. They are not seen as people who are full and contributing members of their societies. And this is the same in any uh, Muslim majority country, uh, in Egypt, in, in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, Christians have always been, like Jews and like other non-Muslims, have been seen as less than equal. Um, nothing much has changed these days, and so there's that kind of baseline problem that, that Christians are facing. But in some countries, and I think Egypt is maybe the most obvious example, it's even worse than that. There is outright terrorism, uh, real persecution, murder, uh, rape, that is happening to Christians, not every day, but on a regular basis. Not a month or two months goes by without hearing of some really horrendous attack on the Coptic Christians of Egypt. And uh, the Copts are, they're the indigenous people of Egypt. They're kind of like the analogy in the US would be the American Indians. They were the people who were in Egypt first. They see themselves as descended from the pharaohs, people who adopted Christianity very early on and have preserved their unique sort of ethno-religious community even after the Arabs came from Arabia. Even after Islam came, they stayed Copts. They stayed the indigenous people of the region. And so they live in cities and towns and villages all over Egypt. They're not concentrated in any one place. Um, and ISIS, and not even ISIS, but Muslims who share a similar mentality that ISIS shares are doing their best to persecute uh, these Christians as they've been doing for, for centuries. So there are a number of things happening in Egypt that are deeply vexing. I think there's a lot more that the U.S. could be doing with the president of Egypt, President al-Sisi, to get him to put his money where his mouth is. You know, he talks a lot about the you know, the Christians being equal members of Egyptian society, but things are happening on the ground that are the exact opposite of his words. In Iraq, uh, ISIS has been pushed out. Christians in the last year have begun to come back to the villages where they were, where they fled from. Um, and they're trying their best to rebuild their lives. Now their numbers are much smaller than they were before ISIS. Lots of Christians have fled to Australia, Canada, US, Europe, uh, but those who stayed uh, and some who came back are trying to rebuild their lives. It's very difficult because the Christians of Iraq are caught between the Kurdish nationalists and the Arab nationalists of Iraq. That's a whole story I won't go into, but the Christians are, are caught between a hammer and an anvil, and no one is really uh, vocalizing their concerns, representing their interests at the political level. So yet again, they are sort of lost uh, and disempowered in the midst of much greater forces. In Syria, it's sort of up for debate. So some Christians are very uh, supportive of Bashar al-Assad. They think that he 
is the only thing standing between them and radical Sunni extremism as represented by ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Others think that he's part of the problem and not part of the solution. And so you'll meet Christians in Syria who feel differently uh, about Assad and what the final uh, solution should be for Christians in that country. But uh, one of the things that's, I think, you know, maybe most relevant here is this part of Syria, this eastern part of Syria, that is controlled currently by Kurds, Arabs, and Syriac Christians, supported by U.S. troops, which is sort of like the last holdout in Syria um, that has not yet been taken over by the Assad regime. It's this almost autonomous region uh, in eastern Syria. And many Christians, many indigenous Christians, want things to stay that way. They, they don't want the Assad government to take control of that. They don't want the Turkish government to come over the border and to take over that area. And really the only thing keeping that area uh, safe and secure is the presence of U.S. troops. Now, Donald Trump recently announced that he is for sure going to pull out these troops, and it's a small number, it's something like 2,000 or 3,000, um, and let other people fight this fight. But the reality is that when U.S. troops are pulled out, this area, this area that has been very friendly to Christians, more friendly than so many other parts of the Middle East, will also kind of fall back into the uh, control of people who are less, who are less friendly to Christians. And there's all kinds of implications for that. And I think that Christians who care about Middle East Christians will see that issue in particular, this evacuation of U.S. troops from eastern Syria as deeply problematic. It doesn't cost us much. It's a, it's a few thousand people, very elite U.S. troops. It's not all that much money. And they are enabling a zone of pluralism to some extent. It has its problems, but it's, it's enable, we're enabling this area to flourish in the midst of this chaotic uh, region. And the idea that we're going to pull out and leave these people to their own devices is something that for me is, is really a, a big issue. So I think that's another thing to keep your eye on, the, 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 the outcome of U.S. engagement with Eastern Syria and the Kurds and the Christians who live there. And there's other, other pockets of the region where Christians are more safe or less safe, but overall, it is uh, not a good time to be a Christian in the Middle East at all. Hmm. Um, so looking, looking forward into 2019, there's, there's a lot of different things that, um, that the region is facing, but for, for this next year, what are some of the main issues that we should really keep an eye on going forward? I think there are, there are many, but I'll, but I'll list a few that may be the most, most important. I think the, the status of Christians is going to be a big issue. It's not going to go away. I think Egypt is going to be the most important place where this conversation will be uh, had. Um, trying to find out, is there, is there a future for Christians in this region? If so, what does it look like? That's going to be an ongoing issue that's going to play itself out in different ways. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or the Arab-Israeli conflict, however you describe it, uh, what is going to happen on that front this year is still very much unclear. Donald Trump has talked about this uh, fabled deal of the century. He has supposedly a, a very, you know, a 
very exciting uh, peace plan that he is still keeping under wraps. No one really knows what's in it. The Palestinian side, for its part, has vowed to rip it up before they even read it. And the Israelis don't seem like they're in that much of a hurry either. In the meantime, the big change that's been happening in that on that front, the Arab-Israeli conflict front, is that uh, that framing actually doesn't work so well anymore as Israel, under the leadership of its current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, builds strong alliances with Arab states around the region, not only in its neighbor Jordan, but also in Saudi Arabia, in Oman, uh, in, in parts of Africa. The Israel is actually becoming quite chummy with a variety of Arab states around the region, which is throwing the whole the whole issue of the conflict off. It's, it's not, the conflict doesn't look the same as it did even five years ago. Now it's not, it's Arab-Israeli, it's some Arabs and Israelis. Some Arabs are actually warming up to the Jewish state and how that plays out and what effect it has on the specific case of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations remains to be seen. That's another thing to keep your eye on. Syria, I've talked a lot about it. Won't say much more, but the the future of Syria is really the big question that's hanging over the region right now. Will Bashar al-Assad stay? Will he regain his whole country, including eastern Syria and all of the parts that were taken over by ISIS? Will Syria be put back together again? Or is Syria going to be carved up into different provinces or different states? Uh, what role will Russia play? Most importantly, at least from Israel's perspective, what role will Iran play? And the last issue to keep your eye on is Iran. Iran is something that uh, anyone who's paying attention to Middle East news is aware of. It is, a, it is not a Sunni Muslim state. It is a Shiite Muslim state, which means that it has beef with lots of other states in the region, coincidentally the very states that Israel is becoming chummy with. And Iran is doing its best and has been doing its best for years now to expand its influence, its tentacles all around the region. Its most successful project was establishing the uh, terrorist group Hezbollah, which is based in Lebanon and is the group most threatening Israel's northern border. But Iran is also deeply entrenched in Syria. And it's doing its best to amass weapons, amass personnel, uh, right on Israel's northeastern border, just opposite the Golan Heights. And Israel uh, is going to, has vowed to not let Iran get a foothold, a military foothold in that country. So I think you're going to be seeing lots of situations where uh, Israel and Iran are doing this tit-for-tat thing on Israel's northeastern border by the Golan, by Lebanon, where Israel sort of sends its jets over into Syria, bombs Iranian equipment and military personnel, and then Iran does something back to Israel and, and so on. This is going to be a story that's going to keep playing out. Whether that tit-for-tat conflict will rise to the level of a full-scale war, Israel in Syria fighting Iran or Iranian proxies, that's a big question. We're not entirely sure. In the meantime, because Donald Trump has been very proactive in countering Iran and uh, talking about the need to sort of put Iran back in its place and make sure that it doesn't 
spread around the region with its, its forces trying to you know, make everything unstable, uh, levying sanctions, ending the Iran deal, the world has begun to once again put a lot of pressure on Iran. Iran is in economic trouble. People on the street have become very dissatisfied with the Ayatollahs who run the country. And I would say that people who are interested should keep an eye on the internal situation in Iran. I believe that the current Iranian regime won't last that much longer. Will it be three years? Will it be five years? Will it be 10 years? I think we're going to see the collapse of the Iranian regime soon. People in Iran are fed up with the way that the, uh, the Shiite leaders are running the country, starting all of these problems of the Middle East, spending money not on actual Iranians, but on all of these fights against Israel and fights in Syria. These people had enough, and they've been marching for months now. And, and, and they're really uh, calling for a, a regime change. What happens after that, you know, what comes after the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, is another big question that we're all asking. And of course, the answer to that question will affect what's happening in Syria. It will affect what's happening in Lebanon. So there's all of these sort of competing uh, factors that are at play. And the big question, again, for an American is, where do we fit in the story? What, what are the hills that we are going to die on? Who are the people that we're going to defend? Where are we going to spend our money and influence? And as Christians, of course, there's an extra layer of analysis where we're saying, who is suffering? Who are the people that need the most help? These may be uh, Christians, they may be Jews, they may be Muslims in any given state or context, but we as Christians are concerned about the people who are suffering, the people who are, their lives, their freedoms are in jeopardy. And of course, we also care about freedom of religion, freedom of the gospel to be preached uh, to everyone. So there's, there's a lot going on. And I think that for people who care about the region, and this is what I would say lastly here, is that to me, the big difference between people uh, talking on the Middle East is, is the difference between those who actually care about the Middle East and the people who live there and the people who want to virtue signal or just kind of be involved in a, in a, in a you know, hot topic of the day. There's a big difference, the way people talk, the way they act, the things they care about, the depth to which they're willing to go engaging on these issues. My hope would be that everybody in the Philos network, everyone in the Passages network would fall into the former category. People who, for Christian reasons, moral reasons, American reasons, actually care about the people in the Middle East. They care about what's happening. They pray about all of these situations and pray that God's will is done and God's people uh, are protected. I, I would urge people to make the Middle East, the people of the Middle East, a regular part of their prayer life and also of their intellectual life. You know, pay attention, look for information, find out what's happening, go a little bit deeper. You don't have to be a, a PhD, but uh, you should know the basic issues. You've been to the region, you, you have a sense for what's happening and the, and the stakes of this game. And so I think it's, it's really our duty to, to pledge to be involved, even if it's at the level of, of prayer. No, that's really good. Um, but the Philos Project has a specific focus for 2019. Can you tell us a little bit um, about that focus and, and why that's something that you guys chose to focus on this year? Yes, yeah, so our focus this year, our thematic focus is anti-Semitism and combating anti-Semitism. Now, 
people may say, wait a minute, your mission is to promote positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. What in the world does anti-Semitism have to do with that? You're talking about Syria and Iran, and like that's where your energy should be focused. But Philos, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is going deeper, going beneath the headlines and really trying to find out what are the, what are the real dynamics at play here? Yeah, culture, religion, um, uh, social factors, economic factors, because you can't just look at a map and think that the lines on that map determine everything that's happening in a region. There's so much happening. I call it the deep map, the deep map of the Middle East. Uh, and it's, it's all of the cultural and spiritual stuff that's happening on the ground, making people do what they do. And for me, anti-Semitism is a major problem in the Middle East. And coincidentally, it's also a major problem in the Christian West. You know, we, we seem to have convinced ourselves that, you know, anti-Semites, they're over there. That was, that was Hitler. That's like the radical Muslims. But we forget that anti-Semitism isn't just, you know, killing somebody in a synagogue. It is any unjust word or deed aimed at the Jewish people, whether it's very violent or, or you know, seemingly very soft. And I would say that uh, even as we're looking at the Middle East and pointing out the very real problem of anti-Semitism in the Middle East, and it's rampant, and this is from side to side, top to bottom, Arabs, everybody, even Middle East Christians, often, because they're absorbing this from their surrounding societies, often take on many anti-Semitic attitudes. But even as we're looking over there and kind of pointing the finger and being like, this anti-Semitism thing is a big issue and the Middle East will not start to become normal, certainly in its relations with Israel, but arguably just normal in general until it deals with anti-Semitism. Even as we're doing that, we need to also be pointing the finger back at ourselves because there is a tremendous rise of anti-Semitism in the West in Europe, in America, and numbers are coming out every month about the rise of anti-Semitism. Some call it the new anti-Semitism. And this is not just sort of the classic, oh, Jews, we don't, we don't like them. We don't like their race. They're taking all the money. Uh, it's deeper. And sometimes it even takes on Christian forms. Historically, for sure, it has taken on Christian forms where Christians, for sometimes theological reasons, make the Jews, put, make the Jews out to be um, more evil than everyone else. They have just a special hatred for the Jewish people, and it may be concealed under various layers of theology and nuance, but when you dig deep enough, you find out that these people just don't like the Jews. And I would say that for us, fighting anti-Semitism is not a it's not a political cause. It's not something that we're working on at the level of legislation. Fighting anti-Semitism for us is a spiritual fight because what anti-Semites don't like, it's not just they don't like Jews, they don't like who the Jews are and more importantly, what the Jews represent, what the Jews brought into the world, this idea of one God who chose one people as his vehicle for revealing himself to mankind, for reconciling mankind unto himself, for bringing the morality of the Hebraic God into the world, for calling the people of the world to responsibility before that God. It makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. They may not like the chosenness part. They may not like the morality part, the responsibility part. Whatever it is, 
you find large numbers of people in different religions, different cultural communities who have a special uh, problem with the Jewish people. And for us, you can't fight that at the level of politics. You fight it at the level of spirit. And rather than be anti-Semitism, we're trying to be pro-Semitism, which is a clunky way of saying we're trying to be, we're trying to double down on the Hebraic tradition, on the heritage that the Jewish people, inspired by God, brought into the world, because that really is the link between us and the Jewish people. You know, why do I care about Israel? It's not because necessarily I think Israel as a country is a perfect country. My link is with the Jewish people, and I understand that what they're doing in Israel is trying to be secure, trying to be safe, trying to preserve the tradition that they've brought to the world. And so for me, an anti-Semite isn't just against Jews. He's against, he's against Christians, because Christianity, uh, Christ was a Jew, and Christianity came from Judaism. And until we understand that there is a deep connection between us and the Jewish people and see their fight as our fight, then we're really missing the forest for the trees. It's not an accident that the very people who want to kill the Jews in the Middle East also want to get rid of the Christians of the Middle East. There's something that we both share, even when we don't see it, that drives everyone else crazy. And so this year, we're trying to go deep. We're trying to explain this in a way that uh, allows Christians to see the big picture and also to help mobilize them in their communities to be more involved, to educate their church, their, you know, their school, or their university, wherever they are, about uh, what this is all about and how they can be involved in, in combating it. That, that is so amazing. So kind of on that front, what are ways that we can stay up to date and then also help others around us do the same thing and kind of educate them? Well, look, paying attention to the news, anytime I'm asked this question, it's, it's, this is my first answer. You have to, if you really care, if you're listening to this podcast and saying, I, you know, I really do, I want to know, I care about these people, I want to be involved as much as I can be, then pay attention to the news. It's, it's quite easy. We get it on our computers, on our phones, we get it in our ear, in our hand. There's, there's, there's no time uh, better to be alive than now if consuming news is is your thing. Understand the basic gist of what's happening in the Middle East, in Israel, but also among Israel's neighbors. So keeping up to date with the news to me is the bare minimum uh, that I would hope Passages alumni uh, would feel compelled to do. But there are people out there in the Passages Network, in the world at large, who say, I'm a Christian. I may have been to the Middle East through Passages, or I just may care about the region, but I want to go deeper. I want to make the Middle East a part of my career. I want to I want to be professionally engaged in the Middle East as a journalist, as a policymaker, as a congressional staffer, as a church uh, ministry professional working for NGOs. If you're one of those people, or if you're somebody who says, "Look, I'm going to go on a different career path, but I still want to uh, promote understanding and engagement with the Middle East in my local community." If you're either of those people, if you want to go that extra mile, the best path for you is to become more involved with the Philos Project. So in addition to all of what you do with Passages and Passages Now, become a member of the Philos Project. It's free. It's just a sign-up page. And what that gets you is access to a tremendous range of not just content and educational materials, but 
opportunities, opportunities for, for their travel, training, and learning in the Middle East, opportunities to start chapters or join local Philos chapters in your city, uh, which is a tremendous, uh, I think, opportunity to lead locally in a way that a few other organizations would allow you to do, but also to, to get those jobs, to get those internships, to get scholarships, to travel more and to learn more in the region. It's, it's really, to me, the launching pad for uh, a life of deeper and richer engagement in the Middle East. So I would encourage you, go to our website, philosproject.org, and go to the membership page and sign up. It's very simple. It takes two minutes. And we're just about to relaunch our website. Part of the new website will be a new content portal, which will be, if, if we do it right, the one-stop shop for what's happening, latest news, latest insights about Middle Eastern issues from a Christian perspective, not just articles, but podcasts, audio, video. It's going to be the gateway to the Middle East for people who are sitting here in the West. So pay attention to our website, look for that, become a member, pay attention to our Facebook page, follow me. I'm on Twitter at RW Nicholson underscore. I write a lot uh, for our journal Providence. We have a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I write about all of these issues all the time. Follow me, follow Providence and get a hold of us. Info at philosproject.org. If you feel like this is something that's more than special for you. If you want to be involved in this work or even be more involved in, in hearing about what's happening in the region, contact us, reach out, write us an email, tell us who you are, tell us your connection to passages and why you think that this is important for you and how you'd like to get involved. Our job is to get people like you into this world, to get you to care more, pray more, and do more for the sake of the people living on the ground in the middle of the world. Awesome. Well, Robert, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today and just giving us a little bit of a picture and update of what's going on right now in the Middle East and going forward into 2019. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Uh, we'll see you again next time. To learn more about how to get involved, visit passagesisrael.org backslash pulse. From Passages, I'm Rachel Powell. Thank you for listening.